Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass. This is your host, Brett Hawes, and we are back with another episode. Um, before I get into today's episode and my guest, uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who attended the CHFA, the Canadian Health Food Association uh, show this weekend. I know I saw a ton of you there. It was an amazing weekend. I uh, saw so a lot of listeners, former students, um, so it was really great to, to see you. If I did see you there, um, uh, g- good stuff. And also, um, I just wanted to extend uh, a big thank you because I got a lot of really positive feedback for the podcast. You know, when you do these shows, um, there's not a lot of uh, commentary, there's not a lot of feedback coming back. So, it was really great to hear from so many of you that you are enjoying the show, that you're sharing the show, um, and just uh, really getting a ton of value out of it. So uh, thank you for your feedback. Uh, before I get into today's show as well, I will just make quick mention that registration for the Digestion Masterclass for Practitioners, that will be wrapping up in the next two days, depending on when you're listening to this. So if you are a practitioner, I know a lot of you have expressed interest in this. Um, you know, I've got a lot of emails and comments on social media. So we are going to be wrapping that up uh, by Wednesday or Thursday this week. Um, that would be uh, around about September 18th, 17th, somewhere around there. So if you're interested in that, um, it's an action-packed day. There's a ton of awesome, valuable resource. And ironically enough, uh, today's episode really will um, dovetail into that. So you can find more details there at holistichealthlive.com. And uh, you can get yourself signed up. If you are unable to make the live event, obviously a lot of you are um, you know, all over the world. Uh, if you can't make that live event, um, you can sign up anyway and get access to all of the materials online. Okay, so holistichealthlive.com. Right, so on to today's guest. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Peter Osborne. Uh, he is a functional medicine practitioner, uh, award-winning um, author, and also the founder of the Gluten-Free Society. And uh, that is really the focal point um, of our discussion today. Uh, we talk a lot about gluten. We talk about autoimmune disease, which is also a specialty and focal point of his. And I think that, um, you know, we, we get into a lot of nuance and a lot of things that you probably never heard before, all right? Um, you know, when you think about going gluten-free, uh, typically we're just simply talking about cutting out the gluten grains. And what you're going to hear on this podcast is that oftentimes there are cross-reactive foods. Um, there are uh, literally hundreds of gluten-like proteins found in grains and grasses and things that are typically used in gluten-free products. So, You know, if you are someone who has tried a standard gluten-free diet and maybe you're still having digestive issues, maybe you're still having autoimmune issues, uh, I think you should definitely give this podcast a listen. We also talk a fair bit about testing and the sort of misdiagnosis, if you will, or at least just not really having proper testing. And I think this is very relevant because, you know, the conversation that's going on out there for a lot of people is that gluten sensitivity, gluten allergy intolerance, you know, we get into that in the show, but um, if you're not looking for the right thing, you're not going to find what you're looking for. And this is why we often find that people are going to see their physician, they're going to see their practitioner, and they're essentially saying, oh, you're not allergic to gluten, Um, it's all in your head. Okay, or it must be something else. So again, you know, if this is you, if this sounds like you, or perhaps you know someone in your, you know, your friends or family or someone like that who uh, 
is perhaps having these types of issues. Um, this is definitely a good podcast to listen to. And uh, of course, if you're a practitioner as well, you're probably going to get a ton of uh, value out of this uh, because it really is a deep dive. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, again, as always, if you enjoy the show, um, please do subscribe, leave us a review and uh, share this with your friends, family and community. Uh, so please welcome to the show, Dr. Peter Osborne. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. Uh, so good to finally meet you. I've actually listened to a lot of your online lectures and um, read a lot of your work. So how, I mean, I know about the, the sort of gluten-free society and you wrote a book, uh, No Grain, No Pain. How would you sort of describe your work in a nutshell? Like what's the sort of focal point of what you do as a functional medicine practitioner? We help people realize that there's hope for recovering from an autoimmune diagnosis. There's, you know, just in the U.S. alone, there's 50 million people that suffer with autoimmune disease, and the vast majority of them are put on life-threatening medications to mask their symptoms so they can live their day-to-day -day life. Um, and what we help people do is realize they don't have to take that path, that there is a diet and lifestyle choice path that can be taken that can put autoimmune disease into remission without the need for, for life-threatening medications. So um, autoimmune is sort of the focal point in clinic. And obviously, I mean, the founder of Gluten-Free Society and the author of No Grain, um, No Pain, would you say that the, the, the gluten component is really a primary focal point and a big component of autoimmune disease? It, it definitely, it has to be because, I mean, if we look at the history of autoimmune disease prior to 1950, it barely existed. I mean, the, mm. to hear the term autoimmunity was, was, was relatively rare. And celiac disease, which was the, the cause for celiac disease was discovered by a, a, a Dutch pediatrician by the name of William Dickey, who dis, discovered that children during World War II, when, when eating grain, um, well, not when not eating grain. During World War II, grain was rationed, and so these children with celiac disease, and at the time, we didn't know what caused celiac disease, but this, this doctor observed that during the grain ration, they all, all the patients went into remission. And so that's, that was 1952. So if we think about you know, autoimmune disease, we think about the history of gluten and autoimmune disease, gluten is the one scientifically proven, verifiable fact that all doctors can agree upon that we know it causes autoimmune disease. So gluten has to be at the crux. If you have an autoimmune condition, you've got to rule out gluten sensitivity because you can do anything else. You can change your diet, but if you are gluten sensitive and you continue to eat it, it will continue to spark a drive in your immune system that causes it to overreact. So the focal point has to be ruling in or out gluten sensitivity, although there are other causes and triggers for autoimmune disease beyond gluten. Yeah, and that's something I speak a lot about on the podcast, and, and I deal a lot with autoimmune issues in my own practice. So um, I 100% agree, and obviously there's other factors as well that really tie in. But I want to sort of start from the beginning and, and I think define some terms for our listeners because when we talk about gluten, you know, the discovery of gluten happening in the 50s, we're really only talking about one type of gluten molecule, which is alpha-gliadin, right? And th that's sort of the most heavily researched component of gluten or gluten protein um, with celiac disease especially. But 
where, where are we nowadays? You know, I mean, we've obviously discovered other things. So can you sort of paint a picture of the history? Yeah, I mean, that gluten was actually discovered by T.J. Osborne. We share the same last name, but we're not related. He was considered the, the, the father of plant biochemistry. The gluten is defined as the family of proteins found in the seeds of grass that are soluble in alcohol. So let me repeat that in a different way. The seeds of grass are basically wheat, barley, rye, oats, corn, rice, sorghum, millet, teff, triticale. These are all basically grass seeds. And inside these seeds, there are storage proteins called glutens. And glutens have a job to do. They're, they're, they have two primary jobs to do. One is they help the plant itself. They help feed the embryo so that the plant can grow from a seed stage into a stalk stage or a grass stage. Number two, they help protect the embryo from predation. So from predators eating that potential seed into extinction, right? Because the seed, its job is to harbor the life form and allow it to progressively continue to survive. And so it has to have a protective mechanism biochemically because it doesn't have arms and legs. It can't run away from predators. So gluten as a family of proteins is one of the chemical uh, or chemical compounds within the seeds of grass that help protect the grass from being eaten into extinction. So we look at what do we know about gluten? You mentioned alpha gliadin, which is found in wheat, barley, and rye. And in terms of gluten-free food labeling, alpha gliadin is what they're referring to. They're not referring mm -hmm. to the other forms of gluten. So there are to date, um, it's estimated close to a thousand different forms of gluten. As a matter of fact, a, a group of researchers in Australia, Bob Anderson, and his team discovered 400 new forms of gluten back in 2010. And 40 of those forms were more toxic than alpha gliadin to wow. a person with gluten sensitivity. But here's the problem, right? So if you go to the doctor and you're trying to get a test for gluten sensitivity, if they're running the standard medical labs, they're going to run a test that measures antibodies against alpha gliadin. And so what they're really doing is they're measuring only one type of gluten. When I just said there are over 400 forms, 40 of them are more toxic than alpha gliadin. So if you're only running the test for alpha gliadin, you're being basically misled. It's not comprehensive enough to really give you an answer as to whether or not you're reactive to gluten. Mm -hmm. so, well, and, and, and of course, therein you know, lies another problem where you might show up negative on a test, right, but be reacting to these 40 others or 400 others. And so, of course, you, you sort of get the check mark that you're okay, and maybe it's all in your head, or maybe it's something else, and, and off you go down the rabbit hole, right? That, that's right. And then, and then you also have, you know, another caveat to that false negative type of lab test, which is if you've been gluten sensitive, or if you've not, if you've been, you either are or you're not. If you are gluten sensitive, and you've been eating gluten long enough, initially it will spark antibody production. So you can measure antibodies and you can see an elevation. But if you've been chronically ingesting gluten, what for some people happens is it starts to cave their immune system to the level that you try to measure antibodies, and they are actually antibody depressed. So where you're, maybe you're using an IgG or an IgA antibody test to isolate whether or not that person's making antibodies to gliadin, but maybe their immune system is so distraught and so overworked that it's now starting to go the other way. It's starting to actually crash. So you can get a false negative on a test result for more than one reason, but that's the other, that's the other very common reason we'll see a false negative.
Hmm. So, so when you talk about these other 40, um, you know, gluten components and 400 and a thousand, but the 40 that you're talking about, can you give us examples of where we might find that? Like what types of foods are we looking at? Wheat, barley, rye, corn, rice, oats, sorghum, millet, grains, right? Huh. So think cereal, think bread, think pasta, think products on the grocery store shelf that are being labeled as gluten-free where the substitute uh, is another grain beyond wheat, barley, and rye. Again, if, if you know the laws in most and in, in most acceptable in science to label something gluten-free, it has to be wheat, barley, and rye-free down to 20 parts per million. So it cannot contain uh, alpha-gliadin above a 20 parts per million threshold, which generally means it's wheat, barley, and rye-free. But again, so let's say you're buying a cornbread that's labeled gluten-free, you might be getting exposure to some of those glutens that we know are toxic. Yeah, let's say you're buying a rice-based flour mix to make some cookies or something. You're going to be getting exposure to a different kind of gluten. The type of gluten in rice is called orzanin. And, uh, and, and again, it's, it's one of those that can contribute to an inflammatory reaction. Uh, let's say you're buying gluten-free oatmeal. There's a type of gluten in, 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 in oats called avenin. It, it, and even though it may be labeled gluten-free, it still contains avenin. There's no such thing as oat-free or avenin-free oats. And it's a form of gluten that we know can create damage for many people with gluten issues. So again, it's, it goes back to, if you really want to take it back to the core, it's most countries use a 1952 science to basically define what gluten is. And they create food labels based on science from 1952, and they don't take into account all the research that's been done on corn gluten and rice gluten and oats-causing reactions in people, and even some of the pseudo-grains. They're not technically even grain, like quinoa, for example, has a protein in it that mimics gluten well enough to create an inflammatory reaction in people with celiac disease. So um, there's all this new science that's coming out. None of it really gets put in or discussed um, or put to the forefront of the media so that people who are trying to navigate this gluten-free diet in a correct manner can actually get healthy. So one research study published several years ago found that 92% of people going on, on what, what I call the traditional gluten-free diet, where they're avoiding wheat, barley, and rye, uh, but 92% of them fail to actually have resolution of intestinal inflammation. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this study was actually done on celiac patients where the, you know, you take a bunch of celiac patients, you take them on a traditional gluten-free diet, and then you go back and you re-biopsy and you re-analyze analyze their GI tract for inflammation. 92% don't heal after 18 months. Right. What does that tell you? That tells you that something else is contributing to the inflammation in their GI tracts. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are a lot of things that can contribute to, to inflammation in a GI tract. There's pesticides, there's other processed foods, hydrogenated oils, there's processed sugar, certainly gluten and grains are not the only caveat here that need to be, you know, really discussed. But the problem is that your average medical doc who goes through medical school has less than seven hours of nutritional training. And what we're talking about is a nutritional disease, right? We're talking about a nutritionally induced disease. It's it's food-induced disease or chemical-induced disease, chemicals that are in our food, and if you have no training in that, as a doctor, you tend to dismiss it as unimportant. That's the scenario. But see, the average person going to see their doctor has no clue. They don't know that the average doctor has less than seven hours of nutritional training. They think, this guy must be smart. He went through medical school. Therefore, he's probably really well-versed and really well-trained in it. They just don't have any idea that that's not true. 
And most doctors have too great of an ego or they're just not honest with their patients to say, look, this doesn't have anything to do with, with nutrition. What they should be saying is, look, I'm not qualified to tell you whether or not your disease is being caused by bad nutrition. Why don't we refer you to somebody who is? It's just not my area of specialty. But instead, the conversation goes more like this. Mrs. Jones, your thyroid problem has nothing to do with your diet. We need to medicate you for the rest of your life. There's no known cause uh, that we know in science that can create this disease, but you're just going to have to accept that fate. To me, th that's a... That's a that's a, terrible, that's a terrible scenario because what, what a doctor is really saying is we don't know what causes your problem, so take this drug. But if you really think about that and analyze that from the consumer standpoint, if you don't know what causes it, doctor, why can you tell me that I need to take this drug for the rest of my life? If you don't know what causes it, how do you know what solves it? Right. right? So like, but most people don't, don't have that question in their mind. They just have a trust with their doctor. There's this relationship that's there, and so they go in with this trust. And it's not that people shouldn't be able to trust their doctors. It's just that people should also be able to understand what their doctors are experts in. And nutrition is a topic that none of them, unless you go beyond medical school and you go to postgraduate to get more education, like me personally, I've, I've done more than 10,000 hours postgraduate training in clinical nutrition, plus my clinic where I've been practicing for 20 years. Um, you know, that's a lot more than seven hours. Right. So there's a lot more of a level of expertise that I can call upon. And there's a lot more of experience that I can call upon when we change somebody's diet who has an autoimmune condition and they go into remission. And other doctors are calling that a miracle and other people are calling that a freak thing when it actually it's a daily occurrence in my practice. It's because they don't have the experience or the knowledge to stand on a platform to really be able to make an intelligent um, statement as to whether or not nutrition relates to that disease. Mm -hmm. 100%. I mean, you know, you touched on so many points that um, I frequently talk about. I actually just did a Facebook Live video yesterday, day before, which was really about like, is gluten free enough? You know, is it good enough? Uh, because that's what we've been trained to tell people to do, you know, traditional gluten free diet. But I want to sort of circle back to a couple of points that you sort of touched on in a sort of roundabout way. And going back right to the beginning, I mean, you know, if autoimmune disease really only, only came about um, on a mass scale in the last, you know, 20, 25 years, maybe not even that long. My, my question is, you know, people have been consuming grains for a long time. So, so why did we not have the prevalence of autoimmune disease you know, 2000 years ago when people are subsisting on grains and, and what have we really done to the grains? Have we modified them? Have we hybridized them? Has something changed in, in a sort of modern context? Yes and no. So we've had autoimmune disease, you know, the earliest known writings of, of the celiac affliction were BC. Um, okay. Here's BC. So it's not like this is a brand new thing. What's happened since really arguably since the 1940s and 50s, if you look at cereal as, an, as a creation, cereal was actually created in about 1890s, 1895. There was no such thing as cereal before that point. So a lot of your, your industrialized machines that are designed to shred wheat or to make um, cereal grains processed down to where they're palatable, like those are the cereal companies, right? Post and Kellogg's were the mm -hmm. first. Kellogg was a medical doctor and he actually created cornflakes. And um, he created cornflakes because during that time, you know, constipation was a problem for people. So he created cornflakes to irritate the bowels of constipated people so that they could have bowel movements. And so it was not a health food. It was a bowel irritant. And people don't know that about the history of cornflakes. But 
Kellogg's brother was a marketer and he did a really brilliant job of marketing cereal and making it sound like cereal was so important. So, you know, your perspective of what you said and what so many people believe is that cereal has always been around when in reality, cereal is a, is a creation really of the 1900s. And, uh, and if we look at the, how that happened, so in 1890, 95, somewhere in that neighborhood, when, when grape nuts and when Kellogg's um, created cornflakes, we've got about 30, 40 years after that where cereal was really pushed as a food. And one of the things that happened in the United States was the Great Depression. It, it, mm -hmm. it happened where farming itself was threatened and, and everyone's livelihood was threatened due to the depression. But farming, farmers were on the verge of going out of business. And the politicians at the time knew that if farmers went out of business, the country would starve to death and that would be the end of the United States. So they subsidized or took taxpayer dollars to give farmers money to grow grain so that the country wouldn't starve. And since grain was one of the easiest things to produce in mass and feed mass quantities of people, that's what was grown. It was easier to grow grain on an acre than it was to, you know, to raise a hundred cows. So you had to be able to grow the grain in order to feed the people at this time. And so what happened was grain became somewhat of a staple food because it was being subsidized. And so then politics and attorneys and marketers got involved and, uh, and they turned this into a, that kind of a marketing element. And so what happened in 1943, what's really interesting about our history there is that in 1943, again, I said uh, cereal was introduced really and invented in the late 1800s. Now we've got 40 some odd years of cereal being used. We've got diseases like Crohn's that are now starting to appear. We've got diseases like ulcerative colitis. B.B. Crohn was a, was a medical doctor, by the way. That's why the disease is called Crohn's disease. It's an inflammatory disease of the large intestine. So we didn't see these diseases before cereals became staple foods. Interesting. Okay, and so, so think about it as grain has always been around, but grain has not always been around in the quantity that it was being recommended. So part one of this is it's a quantity issue. In 1943, the United States government banned the sale of cereal-based processed grain-based foods because they were responsible for about 8,000 deaths per year because grain was actually causing beriberi and pellagra. These are B vitamin deficiency diseases. And so vitamin B1 and vitamin B3. We knew that these grains were causing these deficiency diseases because they were very low in nutrient quality. And so people were eating them in mass as staple foods and developing these B vitamin deficiency diseases and dying. This is where food fortification laws came from, was 1943, the US government mandated the fortification of processed cereals with vitamin B1 and vitamin B3. So that's kind of where that began. And people don't realize that because the cereal companies did such a great job of marketing that what they said is, instead of saying, don't eat grain, it can kill you. What they said is eat more of us because now we're fortified with vitamins and minerals. Very, very huh. much a different message, right? But, but one sounds better than the other if you're trying to sell cereal. So we've got that. But then we also, you mentioned hybridization. Wheat's been hybridized. It's not been genetically modified, but it has been hybridized to contain more carbohydrates and to contain more complex genes and in more complex components and to contain greater quantities of products like amylopectin, which is a type of grain-based sugar, and to contain products like uh, more gluten. So there's definitely more gluten in today's grain-based products as well. So that's another component. Remember, if we want to make things chewy and doughy and have that kind of um, that palatable texture, right, we add gluten to grain. So there's a, there's a substance called vital wheat gluten that a lot of manufacturers of, of flour add gluten to their flour so that when people bake with it, 
you get a chewier cookie, you get a chewier piece of bread, right? So there's a quality issue that, that where we add gluten more gluten to the flour to, in, to increase its palatability. Then you also have what's happened in the last century is the pesticide use has gone mm-hmm. rampant. So pesticides, particularly glyphosate, some argue that glyphosate is the problem and that grains are not actually the problem. That's actually incorrect. They're both problems depending yeah. on who you are. Everybody should avoid pesticides, but not everyone is truly gluten sensitive. There are people who are not gluten sensitive and there are people who are. So gluten is part of the problem, but it's not the only part of the problem. Then you have the way grains are stored. The way farming is done today is different than it was done 70 or 80 years ago. Today, grains are stored in these massive bins and they have a, pro- a tendency to grow mold. And so a lot of our grain source is contaminated with mold and mycotoxins, which many people, 5% of the U.S. population is allergic to mold. So if you're eating, uh, you know, if you're eating grains that have, you know, by default, they have some mold in them, that that could be part of what, why they're creating an inflammatory issue for you. One of the other issues about grain that we know today that didn't, you know, that didn't necessarily used to exist is the genetic manipulation. So there is, like I said, with wheat, it's, there's no GMO wheat. There's only hybridization. So they've taken different strains of wheat to create new strains of wheat, whereas genetic modified means they alter genes or splice genes. That's been done with corn. That's been done with rice and some other, and some other crops. And so we see like a lot of people reacting to the genetically modified corn or to the genetically modified rice and some of those things. So there's, you know, there's just a whole plethora of different things that I think should probably be investigated if we really want to get to the bottom of it, because it's not just about gluten. Certainly gluten plays a major role in all of this, but it's, it's really, we look at the history of grain. Um, one, I think the biggest, the biggest answer to your question is number one, today the average person's 60 to 70% of their total caloric intake or value comes from grain-based foods. That didn't used to be the case. Yeah. Uh, and so we see more of the disease because there's more of the consumption as a whole. So the disease is starting to show up earlier in life. It's starting to be more recognizable or more readily or easily recognizable. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I guess you sort of double down then with the food guide, with the food lobbyists, with the food boards and, and all of that stuff. You know, I mean, every time they try and change the food guide, uh, different boards are all up in arms, you know, because they don't want to change that. Um, I, I don't want to sort of go too far down that garden path today, but I will just sort of add a couple of things. I mean, you know, we, we also let's also consider lectins. Uh, let's also consider phytates as well. You know, I mean, these are present in, in pretty well all grains. And from my understanding as well, you know, if you go back to a traditional setting, you know, you look at Mayan culture, for example, right? You know, corn is such a, it, it, it's an integral part of their narrative and their history, but the way that they were preparing it, the type of corn, it's the, the frequency that they were eating it was, you know, night and day compared to what we're doing today. So, um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and very, very interesting, you know, so many moving parts, but I want to come back to one thing, you know, you mentioned not everyone is, is gluten sensitive and, and there's a couple of things I want to bring up here. Um, from my understanding and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, there are different types of gluten reactions, right? So, you know, when we talk about sensitivities versus intolerances versus um, allergies, you know, those are obviously three very different um, mechanisms, although they present the same in terms of a, of a symptomatic response. But, you know, can you sort of unpack that a little bit? You know, are there different types of reactions? How do they manifest? Um, you know, and, and my second question would be, 
does gluten affect people that are not sensitive to it? You know, I've read some research that suggests that gluten will sort of temporarily make the gut leaky in everyone, regardless of what your health status is. So, yeah, I know the study that you're referring to was done on a small quantity of people, and I don't think we could extrapolate a, that across everyone, not, not accurately, not, not without mm-hmm. doing more research. But gluten in and of itself, is it, you know, the argument is, should anyone eat grain? You know, we hear about the paleolithic diet. We hear about, you know, paleo keto. You know, there are all these different... You know, Carnivore. <laughs> yeah, going grain-free and feeling better and reversing autoimmune disease and losing weight and, and it just their inflammation going away, their pain going away. And it's true. I think what we have to understand is that there are so many varieties of factors in today's modern life that destroy the gut. So if we take a healthy caveman, for example, so his, his GI tract is going to be able to take a little bit more abuse in a sense. So like take the average person today versus that average caveman. The average person today has been on antibiotics a dozen times in their life. And most people, when they're born in a hospital, get antibiotics as, as a standard of care. They get it rubbed in their eyes. Um, and, and so you take people that are born through cesarean section where they don't get their, their GI tracts are not properly colonized by the mom's vaginal, uh, vaginal canals. So they, they are born with less of a potent microbiome. Remember, our microbiome helps us to digest. It helps us to absorb. It helps talk to our immune system. It's a very, very critical part of who we are as humans. And so when we, when we have habits that sterilize the microbiome, habits like antibiotics or eating meats that are rich in antibiotics or drinking chlorinated water and chlorine acts as an antibiotic or eating foods that are doused in pesticides and pesticides act as antibiotics, what we have is we have a microbiome or gut bacteria that are at a huge disadvantage. And so when you start now, you take that disadvantaged microbiome in somebody's gut and you start putting in food that's relatively already hard to digest. The lectins, the glutens, the phytates, the oxalates. These are already hard to digest on a healthy gut. Now take them and put them in an unhealthy gut and it's almost like this perfect storm where you can create now an intestinal permeability that rips microscopic holes in the lining of the GI tract allowing for basically poop and other um, and other waste products to leak into the bloodstream, creating systemic inflammatory and immune responses. And this is why a lot of people, when they eat gluten, maybe they're not truly allergic per se to the gluten, but their gut's compromised. They're eating gluten that's causing leaky gut. And so it's allowing for all these compounds to penetrate into their bloodstream and, and send off many different types of immune type reactions that are leading to an inflammatory response. Well, if you measure for gluten allergy, you're not going to find a positive result. Mm-hmm. Same with the sensitivity. Well, I mean, technically an allergy is an immune response, generally an antibody mediated immune response. And if we really want to be technical, a true allergy is an IgE immune response where IgE antibodies are being released and they stimulate mast cells to open up and release histamine, which causes the watery, the teary eyes, the runny nose, the mucus production, the increase in heart rate, the lips swelling, the throat constricts, like what people think of as a traditional acute allergy. That's a true allergy. Now, if you're talking about a delayed allergy, there are, you know, other antibodies. We make IgG, we make IgA, we make IgM, we make something called uh, IgD. These are different antibodies that, that can also be produced when we're exposed 
to a food or a substance that the body perceives to be a threat. And these, these antibodies are generally more delayed. They don't happen in an acute scenario. An acute allergy happens within 30 minutes to three hours, whereas a delayed reaction can take up to three weeks to really start to manifest inflammation to create wow. enough of a problem to cause symptoms. So those are delayed hypersensitivity responses or sensitivities. Then we have intolerances and intolerances are completely different. An intolerance is not an immune response. An intolerance is when you lack the, you lack the ability to digest a substance. So for example, most people know what dairy intolerance is or lactose intolerance. Lactose is a sugar found in dairy and some people don't have the enzyme that, it, that they produce lactase, which is what digests lactose in dairy. And some people have a deficiency in that enzyme. So when they, when they take in dairy, it causes gas and bloating and intestinal discomfort, which can then lead to a leaky gut and other problems. So an intolerance is not an allergic or an immune response at all. It's just an inability to digest something. Then you take the other side of the immune system. So, so when we talk about allergies, we talk about um, predominantly the delayed allergies. We're talking about humoral immunity. If we really want to get geeky and scientific about it, humoral immunity <laughs> is that. But then you have something called innate immunity. Innate immunity is different. These are different chemicals. These are not antibodies. So I'm going to throw out some words here. Tumor necrosis factor alpha, interferon gamma, MLH trypsin inhibitors spark what's called a toll-like receptor reaction. These are all part of the innate immune system, like the immune system that you're born with. And so some people have innate reactions to different foods, and those are not measurable on your traditional allergy tests. And this is where it can get really confusing because if the doctor's doing a skin prick test or the doctor's doing an IgE test only, it's, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Some doctors only measure for gliadin and they don't measure true gluten sensitivity. Well, it's the same thing. If you're only measuring for IgE allergy response, you're missing all the delayed responses. You're missing all the innate responses. You're missing the potential for intolerance. You're just really, what you're basically doing is you're misleading that patient to believe they've been allergy tested when in fact, they've only been acutely allergy tested to a handful of different foods. And usually when an allergist runs this kind of test, they're measuring for eight foods. Typically, your wheat, your corn, your soy, your dairy, you know, those are some of the more, more common allergens. Yeah, peanuts, shellfish, and so on, yeah. Yeah, they're not yeah. being comprehensive. And so it's just a lack of comprehension, and it's a lack of, of being comprehensive in the evaluation. So it gets complex. I mean, that's, that's why it's not simple. That's why doctors just don't run it, because they don't understand it. And that, that, that I can say with great confidence coming from my experience of training doctors. I've trained thousands and thousands of doctors all over the world. In, in the immune system and in how gluten impacts and affects people and how complex food sensitivities and other chemical pathways can affect people's health and trigger autoimmune disease. And, and it's very typical that I'm in a room full of medical doctors who are blown away by how much science there is that actually, you know, verifies the information that I'm delivering, but they never learned it in medical school. They never learned it. They've learned, oh, allergies, that's not really all that common. People can eat anything. And so, here they are dispensing a lot of drugs, going back to what I was saying, that damage the GI tract, that compromise the GI tract. So it's like the perfect storm. A broken gut, plus foods that are hard to digest, plus the chemical assault that we're in in our modern world where we're exposed to about 30,000 new chemicals, okay, just in the last 50 years, many of them, about 3,000 of those chemicals are in our food. Our immune systems have to deal with all this. And if our immune systems were healthy and our gut lining were healthy, 
it would be one thing. But most people are playing not with a full deck of cards. If you grab the analogy, it's, it's, they're playing with a history of chronic antibiotic use, chronic drug use, chronic exposure to chemicals that have slowly dwindled their immune resources so that at a certain point in their life, usually for women, it's about the third decade of life, about 35 years of age. For men, it's about 45, where we start to see autoimmune diseases develop as a result of accumulated damage over time. So it's not like the quick poison where you eat the gluten and you're on the floor. It's the slow poison, the slow, persistent, consistent onslaught of poisons on a daily basis that eventually overwhelm your body's immune defenses and overwhelm your body to the point where it manifests as illness. Hmm. I mean, just so insightful hearing you speak about this because, you know, th th these are things that I've looked into. I, I know a lot of what you're talking about, but I know that a lot of the listeners and people out there, you know, this is probably a, a big shock for them. You know, they've never heard that. And I think when you start getting into the paleo, keto, carnivore side of things, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, people simply sort of say, oh, well, it's a fad. It, it's just another thing. You know, why would you be grain free? And just hearing you speak about these things, um, you know, it makes total sense. And, and I think it's why so many people with autoimmune disease and other um, seemingly unrelated illnesses are just sort of like thrown out into the cold, you, you know, where we don't really know what's going on. It's all in your head. Um, you know, here's some things to manage the symptoms and, and good luck with that. And, you know, this is why people like you and, and me, like we, we see people that have been on that merry-go-round for you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and, and just in a constant state of degradation. Um, so I, I, I wanted to ask you uh, one other thing here. You know, I've, I've read that a lot of, or, or uh, let me frame this correctly, that most gluten reactions are actually not felt in the gut and that they're felt in the brain. Like how much truth is there to that? It's actually more common to have, there's a term for it. It's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And it's more common to be uh, of that persuasion than to have celiac disease. About It's estimated about a little bit more than 1% of the general population has celiac disease um, based on medical statistics today. But it's more estimated that close to 30% of the population has non-celiac gluten sensitivity issues. Wow, 30%? So, that, that, that's a pretty staggering number if you consider things. Yeah, it is. It's a very staggering number. And this is why the message needs to really be put out there. And this is why special interests, this, you know, the problem with it all is, is you got special interests, the cereal lobbies, the cereal companies, they don't want to not sell cereal, right? The farmers that have made their living and their business and, and you know, created a, a thriving farm, you know, by, you know, harvesting thousands and thousands of acres of grain, they don't want to go out of business. So, You've got all these people that have created a life around creating a food that really should never have been a staple food for humans and never really in the history of man has it been as much of a staple food as it is today. But, but there's so much political and financial gain and loss involved with this. It's just at this point, it's a big beast. And the only way we change the nature of the beast is we have to, you know, you've got to get educated. So, those, and, you know, understand that autoimmune disease, I still stand by this. The predominant cause of autoimmune disease is grain consumption, period. Huh. And, and I, that's based on 20 years of experience seeing thousands and thousands of people go into remission through diet change. Remission of unknown caused diseases, according to their med mainstream medical communities. So how is that possible? How can we see such a dramatic change of life-altering diseases? I mean, diseases that can kill you. Celiac disease can be terminal mm -hmm. if you don't know what's causing the problem. It can kill you. Rheumatoid arthritis can kill you. Lupus can kill you. People don't realize that autoimmune disease 
as a whole is the number one cause of death in women under the age of 65. Wow, I did not know that. Trumps cancer, it trumps heart disease. You, know, you look at in the US, there's 22 million cases of heart disease, there's 9 million cases of cancer, that's 31 million, right? There's 46 million cases of autoimmune disease. Why aren't we talking more about autoimmune disease? All the research funding, all the drug funding goes to cancer and heart disease, why? Because they clump them together. They clump all the different types of cancer under one umbrella called cancer, but they do not do that with autoimmune disease. They don't clump all the forms of autoimmune disease under the same umbrella. They separate them out and call them distinctly different diseases, even though they're really not. They all have the same origins. They all have the same triggers, grain being one of them. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, dermatomyositis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, multiple sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves' disease, these are all forms of autoimmune disease. We're now, dis we're now discovering that uh, type 2 diabetes, not just type 1 diabetes, which is autoimmune disease, but they're now finding autoimmune reactions in type 2 diabetes. Huh. They're finding autoimmune reactions in heart disease, pericarditis. Um, has now been identified as an autoimmune disease. Osteoporosis has now been identified as an autoimmune uh, mechanism of action. So we're learning more and more about how these chronic diseases of modern civilization actually have the undertone of autoimmune disease. And when we start actually asking what are the triggers, gluten and grain are at the top of that list. There certainly are other triggers. There's chemical triggers. There's infectious triggers, bacterial infection, viral infection, protozoal infection, you know, parasitic infection, yeast infection can all be triggers. But then on top, on top of that, there's nutritional triggers, nutritional deficit. Vitamin D deficiency can trigger multiple sclerosis. Vitamin B12 deficiency can trigger multiple sclerosis. So we've got, those are kind of the four categories of, of you know, big categories like of triggers of, of what can actually, if all those things are going on simultaneously, simultaneously, if a person is reacting to their food, if they're getting too much exposure to chemicals, if they have an infection and they have nutritional deficit, that's like the perfect storm to create an autoimmune condition. The problem is, is not a single doctor in today's medical world looks for any of those four triggers except infection. And the way they look for infection isn't very accurate and isn't very in-depth. Most doctors will measure for infection by measuring what's called a complete blood count with differential. And if you have elevations of lymphocytes or neutrophils, they might call it an, an infection. But, but that, you know, that's, that's kind of, for most, for most investigations, that's kind of the depth of it, unless you go see an infectious disease specialist where you get some additional testing that's done that's a little bit more in detail. But you know, the average GP, the average doc, they look at your complete blood count with differential. And if you have an elevation in a particular type of white blood cell, they might call it an infection. But usually what happens there is they give you an antibiotic. And antibiotics are a chemical that we know can trigger autoimmune disease. So they're, the, the, mm -hmm. the cure that they're giving you for the infection, which is also a trigger for the autoimmune disease, creates a new trigger for autoimmune disease. So then we have to ask the question, are you winning or are you losing? Are you chasing your tail? Now, I'm not opposed to antibiotics. I mean, if you've got a 104 fever and you're dying and you're not winning the war against the bacterial infection, take the damn antibiotic. But if you are running 101 fever and you're a little bit uncomfortable and you haven't given your body an opportunity to overcome the infection, like be patient with yourself, like rest, like don't get up out of bed and try to go to work and make everyone else sick. Like give your body time, like to respond to the infection and overcome it. Don't just jump to taking heavy, powerful medications that weren't designed to be thrown at every small infection.
Mm-hmm. So, 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 just to sort of bring us into the close. I mean, um, do do you feel that for for your wheelhouse, you know, let's just stick on autoimmune disease. Do you feel that going grain free is is good enough? I mean, in your experience, have you seen um, a, a radical remission just by going grain free, or do you feel that there's a lot more complexity to it? You know, um, with regards to testing, et cetera, et cetera. My advice is if you have autoimmune disease, get with a functional medicine practitioner who can test you. Yes, go grain free because that might lead to, you know, 50, 60, 70% improvement in in your current scenario, which is something you can do that doesn't cost you any money and it's absolutely free. All you have to do is change your diet. Mm -hmm. Um, But autoimmune disease, if you really want to look at putting it into remission, remember I said it's the number one cause of death in females, excuse me, under the age of 65. Excuse me. And if you really want to under, understand how to put it into remission, you need to understand what your triggers are as a unique person. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what functional medicine is. Like that's the kind of practitioner I am. I'm functional medicine all the way, which is we look for what causes, what triggers the illness. We don't look to cover the symptoms. You know, and some people, even in natural medicine, like like people will say, okay, well, you have pain. Okay, well, then let's put you on like a natural substance, like for example, um, some people take a white willow bark, to, to, which is an herb that helps with the pain, right? Instead of saying, why am I hurting? They say, how can I mask that pain? And it doesn't matter whether you're using a prescription medicine or whether you're using something natural. If you're masking the pain, you're not solving why it's there. Functional medicine's premise is that we want to solve the equation of why the problem exists and make the diet and lifestyle changes so that the person can be empowered to stay healthy with the less of a need for doctors in their future. Like my job in my clinic is to fire everybody who comes in the door. If I'm doing it right, then everybody who comes in the door, we're gonna, we're gonna solve why they have their problem, we're gonna teach them and educate them and empower them to make those changes. When they make those changes, they're gonna get into a recovery scenario and when they're recovered, they don't need me anymore. Now they're educated about who they are, how their body works, how their body functions, and they can take intelligent action steps every day to keep it that way. Like that should be the goal of healthcare. But today's system, the goal of healthcare is, you know, the average person over the age of 35 is on five or more medications and with no end in sight. And one medication causes another symptom, causes another medication for the treatment of that symptom. And it just gets to be ridiculous. And it's, you know, you know in the United States, it's a $3.2 trillion bill every year is to pay for these drugs that actually don't cure disease. We spend $3.2 trillion, and if we look at the outcomes, we don't have less heart disease, we don't have less cancer, we don't have less diabetes, we don't have less uh, obesity, we don't have less autoimmune disease, we have more. Mm-hmm. So despite all that intervention, despite all of that money and that research funding that goes to trying to medicate these diseases, the outcomes are the poorest in the world. And that's, to me, that's what's alarming is that people aren't being told that you can be empowered to change your diet, to change your lifestyle, to overcome autoimmune disease. Going back to your question, should a person seek help? Should they go grain-free? Look, always start with, if you're autoimmune, always start with grain-free as a nice platform, you know, to say, okay, at the very least I can do this. But you should get with a good practitioner because you also want to make sure that you're tested to ensure there isn't some kind of hidden infection to make sure that you don't have a nutritional deficit that plateaus your recovery. You want to make sure that you don't have other food reactivities or food reactions that are also contributing to that illness. Because what happens for a lot of people is they will go grain-free. 
and then, then I get this all the time in my clinic. They'll read my book and they'll go grain free and then they'll come see me. They're like, hey, I read your book. I applied everything. I'm like 60% better, but I'm missing something. And so when we dive into testing, that's what we find. We find those additional triggers. We start removing them and then they can go from 60% all the way to, to recovery. And that's really, the, again, that's the goal. Nice. You know, you're talking my language. Um, everything that you just said, I mean, you know, that that's 100%. I subscribe to that philosophy. And it's what I've been doing for all these years as well. I think on that note, um, Peter, let, let, let's wrap it up. Um, you know, thank you. A really insightful conversation. And I feel like we could just keep on going for another couple of hours. But before I let you go, um, any like information you want to share that we haven't touched on? Um, where can people find your work? Um, what's coming up in your world that you would love people to know about? So our foundation is glutenfreesociety.org and you can always come visit us there where we're always posting videos and, and, uh, and articles um, as research is updated. We, so we also post with that research and try to update people on how they should be um, living their lifestyle and altering their diet. We have a free gift uh, for any of your listeners who want to come pick it up. It's um, they can pick up, it's, it's actually a, a video and a PowerPoint presentation on the cause of autoimmune disease. I'll send that link over to you if anybody wants to, to check that out. It's, um, it's free, no charge. It just, it's a very, very comprehensive, um, I, I did, actually did this series at uh, Torrance Memorial Medical Center for, uh, for uh, a, a huge group, a huge audience of, of patients and doctors who are trying to understand this puzzle of autoimmune disease. And I think it might go a really long way to helping your audience understand it a little bit better as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And obviously, um, I'll put up any links that you want to share in the show notes. Uh, so thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, for those of you listening, I really hope that you enjoyed this in-depth discussion on gluten, grains, and autoimmune disease. Um, as always, if you did enjoy today's show, uh, please consider subscribing. Uh, leaving us a review, and of course, sharing this with friends, family, and your community. So, Peter, uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. It was, it was great to be here. Awesome. And for those of you listening, you have a beautiful day wherever you are.